It's Two Brain Radio. Every week, we'll deliver top-shelf tactics to help you improve your fitness business and move you closer to wealth. And now, here's your host, the most interesting man in fitness, Chris Cooper. Today's guest is almost a household name in the strength and conditioning field. Greg Everett is the owner of Catalyst Athletics in Sunnyvale, California. He is known as a fantastic Olympic weightlifting coach, as a resource for weightlifting knowledge online, as an author. But more than that to me, Greg is a fantastic writer. He is a producer of American Weightlifting. Uh, He also edited that movie. He did the sound score And he is really awesome at sharing information. I talk a lot about content marketing. A lot of people would call that branding or they might just call it marketing. And sometimes in my book, Help First, I talk about sharing things just to help people with no promise of return. Greg Everett is really a pioneer in this field. And he was doing content marketing before it was even called content marketing. But when you think of him, you don't think of Greg as a marketer. You don't think of him as a salesperson at all. You think of him as a coach first. Why do you think of him as a coach? Because he shows himself coaching. He shares his coaching knowledge. And you can be sure that even though he has shared almost more coaching knowledge on Olympic weightlifting than anyone else online, There's plenty more where that came from. And today you're going to get a glimpse into that. Greg's going to talk a little bit about science and a lot about the art of coaching. We're going to delve into business a little bit just because he is a great content marketer. He has gained a name for himself that way. He's worked really hard to do it and he's been very successful. He can serve as a model. And we're going to talk about models in coaching and mentoring and where we're missing that and where technology is taking us. This is a fantastic show with one of the biggest names in U.S. weightlifting today. I hope you enjoy it. Greg Everett, welcome to Two Brain Radio. Thanks a lot for being here. Uh, Thank you for having me. It's my pleasure, man. So first of all, um, you know, one of the, the greatest things I've always admired about you is your coaching philosophy, and you've said this a few different times, is whatever works, right? So where did that come from? And and uh, how does it manifest? Uh, I suppose it just comes from uh, not having a big ego and not being an idiot. Uh, two things I, I suppose I'm fairly proud of being <laughs> at least of average intelligence and not being too much of an asshole. Uh, and I, I think one of the big mistakes that you see made um, with coaches of any discipline, with people, period, is. Um, you know, being too tightly wed to a very narrow interpretation of things or um, a single philosophy, a single methodology, whatever the case is, to the point that um, they'll dismiss, you know, other ideas or other protocols um, out of hand, you know, without actually investigating and, and experimenting and things like that. And, you know, it's it doesn't mean that... Um, I'm willing to try anything that I've ever heard of or ever seen because some things you can dismiss out of hand. Some things are, as they say, don't pass the laugh test. Um, there has to be at least some degree of, of um, you know, uh, viability, and uh, which you can usually kind of see right off the bat if you have any experience. 
but there are, you know, there are always ideas that, you know, surprisingly enough, you personally may have not come up with yet. Um, and it certainly doesn't hurt to at least, you know, give them some consideration uh, before ignoring them. Okay. And, you know, I have the, I have the distinct impression that you take that same approach to business, right? You do a lot of different things. Yeah. Well, uh, you know, this, I I always laugh with the business questions because they come up a lot. Um, And I think because of how kind of extensive and how, you know, widespread and apparently successful Catalyst Athletics has become, um, people assume that I know what I'm doing. And, uh, you know, it's it's kind of an illusion. You know, I, I, I really have uh, been fortunate and am fortunate to be as successful as I am because I think largely it's, it's luck. It's basically the product of, um, you know, my just being very, uh, energetic and, and interested in doing what I'm doing and, and continuing to, um, you know, work very hard to put out material and create new content and, and kind of get people excited about this stuff. And it's, you know, if you if you sat me down with someone who was an expert in business, they would shake their heads and laugh at me and, and just say, you know, what are you doing? And it, it's happened before. You know, it's I've spoken to people who have wanted to consult with me and do all these things, and they kind of look at my quote-unquote plan and, and just kind of shake their heads and say, you know, you could be making so much more money. You could be doing this, this, this. And I just tell them, I don't want to do that. Uh, you know, I don't want to sit around all day um, thinking of business plans and finding ways to monetize content and, uh, you know, figuring out what's the newest, uh, you know, uh, conversion technology on Twitter, you know, whatever is going on. Uh, I couldn't be less interested in it. Um, you know, unfortunately the fact is that I do have to make money off this stuff because it is my sole source of income and it supports not only me, but my wife and my daughter. Uh, and so I do have to take that stuff somewhat seriously, but you know, from the start, it's, it's always been the mindset that, um, you know, as naive as it, it probably is that if I work hard and I continue to put out quality material and do a good job that enough people will recognize that and appreciate it, um, to pay my bills. And so far that's turned out to be true. And I think it's that, uh, put out quality material piece that I'm really eager to dig into. Um, but let's go back in time a little bit. You know, you were one of the partners in CrossFit NorCal originally, and then you left the gym and, you know, kind of, can you walk us through that story? What happened next? Yeah. So I, you know, I really just by chance met Rob Wolf, um, and Nikki Violetti who they're now married. They were not at the time. Um, and Rob had helped start the very first CrossFit affiliate CrossFit North, which is now, uh, CrossFit Seattle level 10 or something like that with Dave Warner and, and uh, Nancy Meenan. But he had just relocated to Chico up in Northern California. Um, I was living there trying to finally grow up and finish college. And, uh, we just kind of happened to meet and, uh, he invited me to train with at his gym and I thought it was kind of lame, didn't really want to do it. You know, I was training in my garage and, uh, but very quickly, you know, uh, I, I was kind of converted mainly due to, uh, how much I liked Rob Wolf, uh, great guy to this day, still one of my best friends. Uh, he and Nikki both. And, 
you know, he asked me to partner with them in the gym. And so that happened all in very short order. And he saved me from, uh, the mistake of going to grad school. Um, and I'm forever grateful for him. <laughs> for that. But, uh, so we ran that gym in a few different locations for a couple years. And then uh, I decided I, I really, um, you know, that had been kind of an opportunity for me to, to get back into Olympic style weightlifting, which I had never fully had the opportunity to do just due to a lack of, you know, facility and, and coaching, you know, this is, uh, between, you know, 1996 and, and 2003 or so, or just stuff just wasn't accessible. The internet barely existed. Um, you know, catalystathletics.com certainly wasn't around for me to look up, you know, helpful videos and stuff. Right. Uh, and so I moved down to Southern California to train with Mike Bergner. And, um, so I basically, we basically traded my share of the gym, uh, for their share of the performance menu journal, uh, which was the monthly journal we started publishing in 2005. So now we're 10 year over 10 years on that journal. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, that was, that was kind of the deal. And, uh, I was, I was sad to go, but it, you know, it was something I felt like I really wanted to do and needed to do. And it, I, you know, I wasn't getting any younger and this was a great opportunity. So, uh, you know, Bergner was my weightlifting coach, uh, and really mentored me, uh, as a, a, a future weightlifting coach, uh, in a lot of ways. And of course my wife was one of his lifters and she was 18. So we met through him and we found out a, a years later that he had, was trying to set us up the whole time. But <laughs> So was performance menu then, uh, the first piece of content that you, you know, ever created or were you doing writing before that? Me personally? Yeah. Oh yeah. No, I, I had, uh, I had like seven books out already at that point. Um, I had actually run a small publishing company, uh, in the early two thousands, um, and had done things like that. A lot of different, different, totally unrelated things. Um, and then, we had we were doing some website content through CrossFit NorCal that was pretty minimal, mm-hmm. and then the performance menu was really the first you know formal regular thing that we did uh, together, and that was really the first kind of uh, step into to publishing in that industry that I was doing. And and so why did you want to take that step, Greg? I, no one else was really doing it at the time. Okay. Uh, and, you know, I think it's easy for people to either forget or to not know at this point that uh, in 10 years, this industry and especially the online presence has changed, uh, you know, so dramatically, it's hard to even uh, describe it. Uh, and so, you know, 10 years ago, we basically, well, the performance money was really Rob and Nikki's idea. They came to me and said, hey, we want to do this. Um, you know how to do it, so let's get this thing going. And uh, it was originally basically a, a nutritional supplement to the CrossFit Journal. Um, okay. And, you know, of course, at that time, we had Greg Glassman's blessing. We were all pretty close with the Glassmans. And, uh, it, you know, it, it very shortly, the nutrition thing, um, we just decided that it wasn't enough. It got kind of boring, so we kind of, you know, expanded out into actual the training realm and of course, when I took it over, I steered it directly towards weightlifting. And so we now have still have that performance menu name as kind of an artifact. Um, 
which is unfortunate in a sense because it really doesn't convey what the content is. But, you know, once you've had it for so many years, you kind of just stick with it. Hard to change the brand. So uh, tell me about opening, leaving, leaving Bergner's place, opening up Catalyst. Uh, when did that happen? And um, was Performance Menu part of your promotional plan or was it just something you were doing at the same time? Uh, so, uh, Amy, my wife and I left Bergner's in 2000 and like basically 2009 end of 2008. Um, and you know, coach Bergner at that point was, was essentially retiring from coaching competitive weightlifters. Uh, you know, he'd been doing it for decades and Amy and I were kind of like the last lifters training out of Mike's gym and. Uh, we could, we could kind of tell that he was getting to that point where he wanted to kind of move on and, and we wanted to move out of the area. So we moved up to, uh, my hometown to open the gym in, you know, I think it was December, 2008. And, uh, we're still in basically the same location. We've moved across the parking lot, uh, about two years ago, but otherwise the same place. Um, and the performance menu was, well, I guess I should say, go back. I actually started the company Catalyst Athletics in 2006 while I was still down there with Bergner. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, so the performance menu was part of that. And I eventually, you know, actually legally merged them at some point. But so the performance menu was very helpful when we opened the gym because that, uh, you know, people knew who I was uh, through that and through the other, uh, you know, content we had been publishing and, um, kind of my involvement with the early CrossFit uh, community and all that kind of stuff. So we we were fortunate in that sense because we weren't starting from absolute zero when we opened a facility. You know, we we expected or at least hoped that um, you know my reputation would kind of get people through the door right off the bat, which it turned out uh, it did work that way to some extent. Hmm. Um, you know, it's not like we were flooded with people. And again, this is. 2008 beginning of 2009 even though that's only you know six seven years ago it was still very different uh with regard to uh the market for crossfit um you know these days largely you open a crossfit affiliate and you have instant uh membership um you know back then it, it wasn't quite so uh so guaranteed so we definitely had to hustle for a couple years to get it going um and so we were very fortunate to have that other side of the business with the publishing and, and all that content to kind of, uh, you know, cover the gaps in the facility and, and kind of give us the that little buffer to get it going. I think most of the uh, audience will recognize you as Greg Everett coach, but uh, I'd love to see what your business card says, because I've I've seen places where you've described yourself as a writer, uh, you know, with American Weightlifting, you were the editor um, you did the musical score, right? Yeah. So how do you describe yourself? Well, I try not to. Okay. Um, uh, that's, that's another rule is that, um, I try really hard not to promote myself and it's, which is frustrating because you have to, to some extent. Yeah. Um, but I very much prefer to let other people do it for me. And again, that's why it's so important to do good work and to, you know, continually be present in front of people and, and be putting that stuff out because then they will talk about uh, what you're doing and, and talk about you to other people and kind of promote you. Um, and I, because I never want to basically find myself in that position where I'm struggling to stay relevant and, 
you know, posting videos of myself on Instagram or, or just making stuff up outright, doing all these silly things to try to create a persona and, and you know, maintain or, or build an audience. Um, so yeah, it, it is a hard question to answer. And, uh, you know, it's, it's like the classic, you know, airplane, uh, conversation. People ask you what you do and I kind of s- just stumble over it because I don't know really how to describe it. Usually I just say, uh, I run a gym because everyone can kind of understand what that means. Uh, but the reality is that I hardly do anything to run the gym anymore. Um, you know, I have Amy and a couple employees who largely, uh, take care of that day to day stuff. So primarily, I guess I would say, uh, you know, I, I write articles, I create content, you know, video, all this kind of stuff. I do all the editing and and that sort of thing. So really uh, most of what I do is more on the, the content publishing side of things. So you now spend more time working on content than actually coaching, right? Uh, well, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that because I, you know, I'm, I'm still coaching many hours, uh, a week, but all I coach is our competitive weightlifting team. You know, I don't do personal training anymore. I don't run classes of any kind or any, anything like that. Like I did when we first opened the gym. Mm -hmm. Um, so all, all I do coaching wise is the competitive weightlifters, which we have a, a pretty big team. Um, and then, you know, seminar stuff and then the publishing, how much of the coaching that you do right now is in person and how much is online? I mean, I know that you do online programming. How many hours a week would you spend at that typically? Well, I, I don't do any of the custom programming, okay. like remote programming. So we do offer custom programming online for remote clients, but right. that's all done by uh, my assistant coaches. Um, so the only coaching and programming I do is for my actual competitive lifters. Um, so they're all training here full time or at minimum like three days a week. We have a couple who have like a 45 minute drive who are only here, you know, two to three days a week. But, and then we do the rest via, you know, email, text, video, all that kind of stuff. Um, but yeah, so I, I technically, I only coach people who are actually present, um, you know, in the gym training for the competitive team. Okay. And we're seeing a lot more gyms try to get into virtual coaching now, right? So uh, how do you interact with your clients when you're doing remote coaching offsite? Well, I mean, it's hard. Um, And I don't think there's really a good way to do it. Nothing can replace, you know, actually being present and being able to watch a workout from start to finish. Um, Because there's a lot of things that you absolutely pick up, uh, you know, before the lifter even starts training, you know, the, the way they get ready, the way they warm up, the way they tie their shoes is going to give you information on how they're feeling, um, you know, whether they're tired, whether they're frustrated, whether they're distracted, you know, all these important things that as a coach you need to know, um, both with regard to how you're going to adjust programming or how you're going to interact with that person that day or that week, whatever it is. Um, and you lose all of that when you go to remote programming. So, you know, typically what you have is, uh, you know, a coach is going to provide a program for a day, for a week, for a month, whatever. Uh, and then uh, the athlete is going to email them some couple of videos of maybe their top sets of each exercise, you know, real quick, uh, you know, emails or texts about how things felt or how things went. And, you know, really what you're getting is the absolute bare minimum information. Um, it, it's 
it's it's almost like having to uh, to kind of piece together like artifacts to figure out the past. You know, you, you don't have the full picture, and so you're largely guessing and estimating. And so it, it absolutely cannot be as effective as having a live one-on-one interaction. Um, and so, you know, the good thing about the opportunities that this technology provides is that there are a lot of people who don't have access to, uh, you know, a qualified weightlifting coach in a good gym with a good weightlifting team. And so they at least have this option, which is uh, a lot better than coaching yourself in most cases, depending on who you're working with, of course. Um, but again, it, you know, it'll never replace that actual personal interaction with a coach and with a team. So, you know, just to back up to what you said about watching an athlete tie their shoes, what what does you know the first ten minutes of your interaction with an athlete look like? Um, and I, I guess this starts as soon as they come in the door, right? Yeah, and and uh, it 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 for me personally, I can't speak for other coaches, but for me personally, it it really varies athlete to athlete. I have I have very different relationships uh, with each of my lifters, and that's that's based on a lot of different things. It's based on you know each of their personalities is based on, you know, how long we've been working together, um, kind of what level of competitiveness they are, you know, all these different things kind of go into it. Um, and I, I put, you know, obviously different amounts of time and energy and focus into different lifters based on, um, you know, what level they're, they are and how committed they are. And so I, I don't hide that from my lifters. I'm very clear that, uh, you know, the more serious they are about their own weightlifting, the more serious I'm going to be coaching them. And I think that's only fair. You know, there's, there's only so much time and energy that I have, um, and I'm going to distribute it judiciously based on merit and based on, you know, them giving back to me as much as I give to them. So, you know, we have a, a pretty casual uh, laid-back atmosphere in here, and, and unfortunately we're in a position where, uh, we can't have a super rigid schedule um, because, you know, all of my lifters actually have jobs and responsibilities outside of lifting. We're not fortunate enough to have a stipended team who's here. You know, their, their entire existence is weightlifting only um, because I would very much prefer to have a rigid schedule. Where we train at 11, we train at 4. Um, you're all warming up together. You're all training together. You're all, you know, doing your accessory work and cooling down together. Because that may, as a coach, that makes it a hundred times easier um, to track everybody. It makes it easier for them um, to stay focused and stay motivated. You know, when they're all training together. Uh, like for example, Saturdays, the whole team trains at eleven. That's the the one day of the week where every single person on the team is here training together at the same time, and the energy in the gym is the highest. You know, everyone has the best time, even if it's a tough workout, uh, which it typically is. Versus during the week where people are kind of split up a little more, you know, some of the lifters train in the morning, some train in the afternoon, or some have to start a little earlier, so they're kind of finishing as other ones are starting. And so you lose some of that um, that energy and some of that atmosphere. Uh, and again, that's, that's something you can't get with the remote coaching. But so my interaction with them is based on a lot of different things. And again, it's, it's relatively casual. Um, and... I would say that I'm largely a, a, a pretty laid back, friendly coach. Uh, I will definitely get pissed off at them and, and chew them out uh, when I feel like it's well deserved and it's going to be actually productive. 
And there's other times where I will flat out ignore someone and not say a single word to them the whole training session because, uh, you know, they are demonstrating the fact that they're, they're not, you know, committed to that workout. They're not focused. They're not doing what they need to do. And there's only so many times I can tell someone the same thing. And if they're either going to do it or they're not. Uh, and so I largely come from the perspective that, you know, to be successful as a weightlifter or really any athlete, you have to ultimately be intrinsically motivated. You have to want to do it. You have to want to work hard. You have to have um, that compulsion to be the best you can be. And, you know, no amount of coaching or prodding or coercing is going to really bring that out in a person that has to already be present. Uh, and so I, I pretty much set my expectations high and people will either meet them or fall short of them. And, and my kind of energy and commitment is, is dished out accordingly. So one of my main missions is uh, to help coaches who are passionate about coaching uh, learn how to actually coach better. So some of the stuff that you just told me was really great for them to hear. And I hope a lot of them took some notes there. But um, when an athlete is just having an off day, you know, and uh, it's, it's Friday, you know, they're, they're tired. They've maybe had a stressful week at work. Uh, how do you modify the workout for them? Or how do you modify your coaching approach or your tone? Yeah, and, that, and that's a good question. I realized in that last little part, it sounded like if someone wasn't working super hard and doing everything perfectly, I would just not talk to them. And that's that's not necessarily the case. It's very, it's a very specific situation. So uh, Thursdays here are usually the worst days because we train Monday through Thursday, right. and then Fridays are off for most of the lifters, and then we train Saturday. So by Thursday, they're all beat to hell, and you know it's. Not usually not a super difficult workout, but you know, in their present state, it can be pretty miserable. Um, and so, again, you know, how you coach athletes has to vary based on that athlete. You have to find, um, you know, what works best for each athlete, and that changes even with a given athlete at different times. So sometimes you have to be kind of the soft-spoken, encouraging. Uh, you know, kind person. Sometimes you have to kick him in the ass and be an asshole. Uh, and, and that's part of the art of it is learning what each athlete responds to best when. Mm-hmm. And I don't always get it right. Um, you know, sometimes I'll, I'll, you know, bite someone's head off when I probably should have been hugging them. Uh, and, you know, so you screw up sometimes. Hopefully you pay enough attention to learn when you've done it wrong and you, you kind of, the next time you know better. Um, but generally, you know, if, if I feel like they are having a tough day because the training is, is really, really difficult. I've asked a lot of them that week. Um, I'm more inclined to kind of back them off a little bit. Maybe we'll drop a set or two. Maybe we'll reduce the weight. Um, maybe we'll even change an exercise kind of depending on what's going on. Um, if I think though that it's less an issue of them being too physically um, tired, too beat up, or the training's too hard, and they're just kind of being crybabies about it, then I'm going to push them and make them do the work. Um, I can remember really clearly there was a day back uh, in Bergner's gym years ago uh, when Amy was having just a terrible day with snatches just missing over and over and over and over again. And, 
Bergner basically told her to go out. You know, we, it, we trained in a garage and there was a little area outside the back where we kind of do abs and box jumps and stuff. And he basically sent her out there, get your head out of your ass, take a minute, come back in. And then she came back and started smoking snatches. And so, you know, you learn, that's the kind of thing you learn when you work with a good coach, um, that you don't really get from books or videos or articles and all these different things. Um, you know, kind of learning that feel of when you need to push an athlete and force them to keep doing what you want them to do. And when you need to just pump the brakes and say, Hey, you know, we're asking a little too much of you right now. Um, let's back it off. And, and that can be for a million different reasons. It can be because the training is genuinely too hard. Like you went a little overboard. It can be that, you know, their girlfriend or boyfriend just broke up with them last night and they didn't tell you, uh, you know, there's a million different reasons why someone can be having a bad day. And it, it's really important that the coach, uh, as much as possible finds out what is going on so they can kind of respond appropriately. And where does that knowledge come from, Greg? I mean, so you just referred to that as the art of coaching. And I think maybe programming is more of the science of coaching. But as you said, uh, you're going to be a lot more effective in person because of that art. How did you learn that art? Uh, well, you know, part of it is, like I said, mentoring under an established coach. Okay. Um, and I think that's that's one of the things in this kind of new landscape of, of the Internet and, and – these spontaneously materializing experts and coaches uh, that is woefully missing is there, there is not that um, kind of transfer of knowledge and practice from generation to generation. It's, it's people kind of getting these piecemeal, you know, chunks of information and trying to reassemble them into the whole uh, and they're missing all the nuance and, and kind of the more, uh, human component of it. And so part of it is it, it's just, you know, having interpersonal skills, period. Uh, and that has really nothing to do with coaching or weightlifting or any sport. Um, it's just knowing how to socially interact with other human beings. And again, a lot of people are missing that uh, because of all this online life. Uh, you know, we don't talk to people face to face anymore. We, we text people. We, I mean, I don't even know what Snapchat is, but we Snapchat people, uh, you know, all these goofy things that have removed that, um, that really personal communication interaction. Mm -hmm. And that makes it very difficult for people to then do it when they need to do it. Um, and so you do have to remember that, you know, you can sit down in front of a computer and write a program on a piece of paper or on your Excel document or, you know, whatever you're using. Um, and it's all numbers and figures and science, although there is a, quite a bit of art to it. But eventually that program has to be used by a living, breathing human being who is very much an individual who has a lot of things going on in their life um, that will affect how they train, how they think of training, how they think of you as a coach, how they think of themselves as an athlete. And all those things contribute to their performance and their uh, commitment to the program and, you know, their, uh, their competition performance and all these different things. Um, and so without that day-to-day -day interaction and, you know, being able to actually establish these personal relationships and that rapport, um, you ultimately you just, you can't do as good of a job as a coach. Hmm. So where do we go for those models now? I mean, 
you know, I was at a seminar a few weeks ago up at uh, Chris Spieler's gym, and uh, Carl Paley and I were both presenting. And it was the first time I'd ever seen him coach. So until now, my exposure to him had been, this guy knows a lot of progressions, you know. But now that I've seen him coach, I say, wow, this guy's a, a really amazing coach. He makes me want to try really hard. Um, but if we're just following these guys on the internet, we miss, as you say, those little pieces in between the cues. Where can we go to get those models now, Greg? Uh, other people. Yeah, I mean, that's the thing is you have to, and it's something that I, I say repeatedly and, um, you know, people get annoyed with me for saying it over and over and over again, um, is that if you truly want to become a great coach, you have to train under an already great coach. You just have to do it. Um, and people will bitch and moan about it because, well, I don't have access to a coach and I don't have this. And it's like, well, you know what? I didn't have access to a great coach either. I picked up and moved my entire life so I could work with one. Uh, and I, you know, granted that's not reasonable or possible for every single person in the world. But if you look at people who are truly successful, um, you will see that they display a level of commitment that is far and away greater than the people who are not successful. And, you know, a lot of that, it comes down to making sacrifices and making decisions and taking risks. Um, and that's one of them. Now, if you're 45 years old, you have three kids, a wife, a dog, a house, you're probably not going to pick up and relocate to train under some world-class weightlifting coach. I get that. But also, on the other hand, if you're 45 and that established, you're probably not going to be changing careers that drastically anyway. <laughs> um, so, you know, the best advice I can give you is, you know, when you are in your younger years and you're relatively unattached, uh, you have that sort of freedom. You have to jump on those opportunities. Um, and now, of course, you know, there are only so many coaches in this country, uh, especially, who are you know, of, of a caliber who I would recommend people, you know, mentoring with. And so obviously the demand is much greater than the supply. Um, and I, I realize that that is, you know, it makes that recommendation very difficult to execute. But at the same time, I also recognize that 99% of the people you tell to do that are not going to bother trying to do it anyway. Mm -hmm. So that remaining 1%, I hope, can at least take that advice and you know they can continue this process of, of kind of that, that lineage and that progression from one generation of coaches to the next where that, uh, you know, all that nuanced information and, and the atmosphere and the mindset and all these things that you can't encapsulate in a book, uh, you know, or in these other means of... of, of conveying basic information um so that stuff gets passed on and kind of that culture of weightlifting uh gets passed on and is preserved so best case scenario uh people have another high level coach to model um i think right now there's probably ten thousand gym owners saying but i already own a gym so there are resources out there for them and i think the technology is getting better right yeah uh and you're even delivering a weightlifting course online. Yes. Where does that fit into the, to the good, better, best spectrum of, of modeling coaches then? Well, I, uh, I vacillated on that whole thing for quite a long time. Right. Um, and, and so, you know, seminars are, are great. They're, 
you know, you actually get to interact live with people and you, so you can get across a lot more information than you can, you know, in an article or in a video or in a book or whatever the case is, because there's that actual back and forth interaction. You know, people can ask questions, you can answer them. Um, so you're providing information that you may not have predicted people wanted in the first place. Um, and of course, you know, people can train and you can coach and all that kind of good stuff. You know, all those reasons people attend seminars. Um, at the same time, the seminars are so incomplete because, you know, I do a, a full two-day seminar. It's a long two days. And, you know, by Sunday afternoon, people are so smoked. They hate my guts. They just want to go home and rest. <laughs> um, and I still feel like I'm I'm just – it's not enough time. Right. Um, but – it's definitely better than nothing. Um, and so the online experience is definitely the next step down from that. And we do, uh, you know, a lot of video, um, a lot of text and all this, these different ways to, to present the information. And then our online modules have, um, you know, like a Q and a thing. So people can ask whatever questions they want. I get notified directly. So I'm personally responding to all of those questions. Hmm. Um, and so as much as possible, I tried to kind of recreate that live experience uh, as well as can be done online with the recognition that it's never going to be quite as good. Um, but at the same time, recognizing that it was kind of a necessary thing that there are too many people who, you know, for practical reasons, can't attend a seminar and, you know, I can't travel to every single city in the world uh, giving seminars every weekend, which, I mean, we, the, the request, uh, requests we get are, are crazy sometimes. You know, it's like, well, why don't you just stay for four weeks in this country and travel <laughs> around and do seminars? We're like, what do you mean, why don't I? Because I have other work to do. I have a family. I have a weightlifting team. That's why. Uh, you know, when I travel to do seminars, I fly in Friday night, seminar all day Saturday, all day Sunday, try to fly home Sunday night, sometimes Monday morning because I don't have a choice. Right. Um, it's not like I'm free and kind of hanging out and like, oh, let's go to Australia for three weeks and just, you know, visit everywhere and give seminars. It's like I got to get in and out, get this stuff done, get back to work because I'm all, all, already behind now because I've missed three days. So it was it was basically um, – I had to jump on that and say, this is a way we can get, you know, more people, this information, um, you know, help more people who don't have access to it currently, uh, at least kind of get that start. Um, and it, you know, it, it ties in with our coach certification program is, is we wanted to basically create a certification that, um, was a little bit more reliable in terms of what it actually meant. Um, Okay. And by that, I mean, you know, knowing the, the general philosophy and methodology of a coach who is certified through Catalyst Athletics is going to be consistent across the board versus, uh, say, like a USA weightlifting coach. You could have, you know, any number of totally different approaches, often very contradictory. Um, and that's not to, to, to uh, disparage the USA weightlifting cert, but it doesn't really um, – it doesn't really specify, you know, that methodology and that philosophy. You can pretty much do whatever you want. Uh, and so we wanted to allow more people to kind of get on board with that. So you've gone from, you know, performance menu, which used to be a PDF that I would download um, to, you know, this website with 
exercise demos and downloadable spreadsheets and now you can you can look at the whole program online to now this full uh, online course that I can take to become certified where's the technology taking you next uh, honestly most days I just kind of hope the technology stops moving forward <laughs> <laughs> Because, you know, it's it's hard to keep up with and people have ridiculous expectations um, and I think people really underestimate how difficult it is as content provi- uh, providers to keep up with all this new technology. Like the American Weightlifting movie is, is the perfect example of it where, uh, you know, we put it out and then instantly it was like, well, why isn't it available in this, this and this format? And so we would add two formats and then, you know, now you can get it on DVD. You can download it from VHX, um, iTunes, uh, Amazon instant video, Google play. And so then we get hammered with, well, why is it on Netflix? Well, we can't just make Netflix take it, you know, that's their decision. (laughs) Uh, and so it's like, it's never good enough. You know, there's always something more that someone wants. Uh, and so the, the farther this technology spreads, the more options there are, which means, the more formats we have to create, the more money we have to put into, you know, people don't understand that it costs money to put these things out in all these different formats. It costs money to build an app. It costs money to build a website. Uh, it costs money to get things on iTunes. Um, and, and it's not, you can't just like keep pouring money indiscriminately into all these different things. Um, because it's super convenient for, you know, two people. Right. So that's what I'm saying is that I kind of hope that the technology just like chills out for a little while. Um, because if you, if you have to constantly be focusing on the delivery format or the delivery vehicle, then you can't focus on the content. And I think that's part of the big problem now is everybody is so focused on the packaging and making stuff look cool and being available on these goofy new stuff like, well, now there's Periscope and all these different things. And well, what about the content? The content is missing and that's what should matter. Uh, You know, in my opinion, uh, a book is still the best thing out there. Um, And yeah, it's not perfect, especially for a sport like weightlifting where you can't convey certain things like video is so great for that. But that is still the densest, you know, easiest way to organize and present information that's been invented so far. And people keep trying to reinvent the wheel and they're so focused on that wheel that they forget the rest of the vehicle. Uh, and so it, it drives me nuts. And I don't want to sound like some kind of Neo Luddite or something who wants to go back to stone <laughs> tablets, but, um, it gets a little absurd after a while. Uh, and, and so it's always fascinating to me when you see people like, Oh, here's my new weightlifting starter kit on this app. And it's $400 for 12, you know, workouts or whatever. And you go, why would anybody buy that? You know, you can get all this stuff for free or for $5, um, and actually get better content. But it's that packaging that people are attracted to like, Oh wow. Yeah, that looks cool. It's an, it comes to my phone. Uh, or, you know, people hammer us always like, why don't you guys have an app? I was like, well, why would we have an app? We have a, a mobile friendly, responsive website that'll work on any, you know, imaginable device that's connected to the internet versus an app that's specific to an Android or to iPhone or whatever. It just doesn't make any sense. Right. So taking that in the other I'm not the Unabomber. <laughs> Let's get that straight. I, I will quote you on that one. And uh, if that's on a t-shirt, I'll buy it too. Um, so taking that the other direction though, like what I struggle with a lot of uh, gym owners who are, 
who are business clients of ours is just getting them to start creating content, period. Yeah. You know, they're fantastic coaches. Um, nobody knows them. <laughs> so, right. you know, let's say it's 2006 all over again. Um, what should, what would you do first? Oh man. Well, the best thing I ever did was write a book. Okay. Um, and you know, the books have changed to an extent in the past 10 years, uh, because there's essentially no barrier to entry anymore. Right. Um, you know, with digital desktop publishing and, and especially print on demand technology now, literally anybody can write a book, um, and you have a book published. Right. Um, and that's not to say that the old method was great because there were a lot of really tremendous authors and great books that never got published. Um, you know, because those barriers to entry were um, editors and publishers who, uh, you know, had to be focused more on the bottom line than the content itself. But, um, you know, the, the pendulum has really swung far the other way. So I still think that having a book, or, I mean, I hate to say it out loud, but even an ebook at this point, right. but yeah. something that is, um, you know, a dense, thorough, extensive package of information that's actually helpful and practical and that people can implement um, that demonstrates your expertise is still the best way to establish that expertise. Okay. And do you think that a book carries more credibility than uh, a video series or, you know, just a lot of blog posts, anything like that? Absolutely. Yeah, I do too. I do too. And it, it, because, and I, I, I mean, what was that movie Finding For uh, Finding Forrester? I think with yeah. Sean Connery and yeah. the young author, and the guy says, uh, "You mean girls will sleep with you if you write a good book?" And he says, "No, girls will sleep with you if you write a bad book." Um, <laughs> and it's that same kind of thing. Like, there's something about a book yeah. that just conveys expertise and intelligence. And that's obviously not necessarily true. There are plenty of books that, you know, appear to be written by a second grader, um, <laughs> you know, using clip art from Microsoft Word, you know, Word 95 or whatever. Um, but generally speaking, that is the impression people get of books. Like, oh, my God, so this guy's written a book. Wow, yeah, he's super smart. Um, and so there's kind of that instant credibility. And I think largely... Um, if you talk to a lot of people who, you know, make money speaking and giving seminars and things like that, they'll tell you that um, their books are not really money makers directly. They're kind of that badge of credibility that then allows them to go out and make money with seminars or speaking to uh, engagements and things like that. I think I'm, I'm walking proof that uh, you don't have to be a genius to write a book. My, <laughs> my first book sold 4,000 copies before anyone told me that there were no page numbers. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So let's let's say that not everybody's going to write this book, right? Um, is it still a good practice if I'm a, a better than average, let's say CrossFit coach, and uh, I want people in my hometown to start treating me like an expert? Is it smart for me to just write more blog posts to film myself coaching? You know, what can I do? Yeah, I think that's a good start. Um, because, you know, in the olden days of CrossFit, when there were five affiliates, um, you know, there weren't a lot of options. These days, when you can find five affiliates on the same street in, you know, any given major city in the U.S., um, 
people have to distinguish themselves one way or another. And that's a good start is, you know, having a a website that has, uh, again, you know, practical information that demonstrates that not only you know what you're talking about, but that you care about your clients and potential clients' progress, safety, health, enjoyment, you know, all these things, um, rather than just kind of having uh, a revolving door gym to kind of get bodies in there and make some money off of them. And is it going to work for every single person? No. Some people are going to go to a gym because the picture on the website looked really cool. And uh, yeah, that looks, that looks like the most hardcore one there. You know, there's a bleeding palm on the, the front page. <laughs> That's where I want to train. There's still some but, of those, yeah. Yeah. But I think those, those generally are going to be people who um, kind of come in and out, you know, quickly and you're going to get a high turnover rate with that kind of a client okay. versus ones who are a little more discerning, um, you know, who want to know like, Hey, these guys have experience. They know what they're doing. They actually care if I make long-term progress. Those are the clients you want because those are the ones who are going to stay with you long-term as long as you take care of them and do a good job. Um, you can do a great job with a, a certain type of client and they're still going to leave after a month because they just, that's in their nature. They're gym hoppers. They want to go meet new people and do different things. Okay. So, you know, there's the type of content that establishes you as the authority and you've published so much of this stuff, but you also have other content on your site uh, that talks about other elements of coaching. Like uh, I was reading one by Travis Cooper today called um, celebrate, don't forget to celebrate or celebrate the wins. Oh, the importance of celebrating your success. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's a huge part of coaching too, right? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, that's the thing as I was kind of alluding to earlier is that there is the kind of numerical, formulaic, um, you know, hard, cold side of coaching that is program design. Yeah. Um, But there is that human element. And uh, I I think that's largely what's missing from this this new kind of online um, environment. And, you know, you lose that human element, you lose that the atmosphere in a gym and and that culture and that sort of thing. And so, you know, part of the reason I made that American weightlifting movie is that I kind of foresaw this this change that at the time I started, which was like 2009 or 10 or so. Wow. I kind of saw it coming and it, it's become worse than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> but kind of this like impending loss of the American weightlifting culture um, due to this massive sudden influx of people um, to the sport who have not uh, been fortunate enough to, you know, train with, um, you know, established weightlifting coaches in a weightlifting gym, you know, in that environment. So they, they, they never are exposed to that culture. They don't learn that culture and kind of adopt it. Um, and it's not, it's not a, a through, you know, it's no fault of their own. It's not like they're intentionally coming in and trying to mess everything up for everybody. Um, they just haven't been exposed to it. They don't know. Right. Uh, and so, you know, part of the reason I made that movie is I wanted to make sure that mindset and that culture was preserved some way. And, and that, these coaches were, you know, set down in on record and kind of preserved as they are, um, rather than kind of being seen through a lens of more modern, uh, the more modern environment that we have now. And so, yeah, that's 
we we really like putting out that kind of content too. In, in addition to the practical stuff, everyone wants the practical stuff. Right. I want to know how do I fix this error in my snatch? Yeah. Um, and that's great. I like providing that stuff. It's easier for me to write. Um, but we do want to provide all those other things too. And you know, how do we how do we become better coaches? How do we become better athletes? Um, you know, on the more human side of things, uh, Matt Foreman's really good about writing articles like that. Um, and he, he's, he's very good at that because he's been in the sport for, you know, 25 years or whatever it is. Um, and he's more willing to kind of put himself out there. I think I have shy away from articles like that because I feel like an idiot when I write them. <laughs> uh, you know, I'll read Matt's stuff and I'm like, damn it. Yeah, I think the same thing. I should have just written that article, yeah. but I don't because I don't want to sound like a dork. <laughs> um, and so he he's really great to have around. He saves my bucks. I'm usually too busy to write articles every week. Okay. Um, but so, yeah, we try to cover all those bases. So, again, as much as possible, I want to get – as much out there to kind of um, give people what they're missing by not being fortunate enough to, to mentor under a coach and, and, you know, come up as a competitive lifter in an established weightlifting gym and team. Um, So as much as I bemoan kind of the dearth of that sort of stuff, I want to try to, you know, give it to people as much as is possible. So one of the things that a lot of smaller gyms are going to struggle with is, how do we tell outsiders about the culture in the gym, that it's more than just the workout? And, you know, a lot of us try to use the word community, but that just makes us sound like even more of a cult. You know what I mean? That's, yeah. That's not well, and, and that word's gotten so uh, co-opted and it's, yeah, yeah that's a t- it's like core now. You don't want to say core workout. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah, it, it's, it's very tough because ultimately – uh, you know, culture is something that you have to experience and people have to see it being modeled by the other gym members and the coaches and trainers. Yeah. Um, and it's not something you can convey in, you know, an elevator pitch. Uh, you can't put it in a brochure. Um, you know, you can try to put a bunch of pictures of, you know, clients hanging out together and smiling, you know, whatever. Um, but, you know, you can't genuinely convey that um outside of people actually experiencing it. And so, you know, something that we've, well, formerly what we would do is uh, an on-ramp program for our fitness clients, right. um, which was, you know, the program developed by Nikki Violetti that we started doing it at uh, CrossFit NorCal. Yep. It was basically a month-long introductory class. So you had this group of new people who all trained together, um, and that was kind of like their indoctrination, right, where you, you – let them experience the culture. You let them experience the coaching and how everything worked. Um, and at the end of that four weeks, if they hated you and didn't want to see you again, they were gone. Um, but most of the time, by that time, you know, you had really convinced them that this was the place they wanted to be. You could do a great job. They love the people and they end up staying long-term. Um, with our, our weightlifting classes and fitness classes, we kind of do something similar now where, uh, we basically have like an intro package. Uh, and so depending on the person's experience and skill level, that's either going to be, um, you know, one to four private sessions followed by, you know, four weeks of classes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so we kind of get that introductory thing done where we're making sure they know what they're doing and they can operate safely in a class. Um, and that kind of gives them that uh, gives them a chance to develop that rapport with a trainer 
um, you know, build that personal relationship. So they're not just, you know, some new person in a class that's all, you know, sad and quiet in the corner because they don't know anybody and they're embarrassed and they think they're terrible. Um, and then you, you move them into that class and then they can really experience that, that culture in the gym and see that, you know, our clients are, are supportive and friendly and they don't care if you're only snatching 20 kilos, you know, they want you to do well and they want to help you and support you and encourage you. Um, and so I think, you know, doing things like that is a way that these gyms can, you know, start to get people through the door, but more importantly, keep them there. Um, and that, to me, that should be the goal is it's, you know, you have to get people through the door. You have to get those leads as the business people will call them. Yep. And the, you know, that the, uh, the FEOs, the front end offers and all that kind of stuff. But really what you want to do is, you know, build these long-term relationships so you can keep your clients because there's nothing worse than a gym that has a whole new clientele every two months. You're just starting over, you know, yeah. every two months or every three months or whatever. It, I mean, it would drive me crazy. And I, I think one of the reasons we've been so successful is that we've been very good at keeping clients long-term. We have a couple clients who have literally been with us since the month we opened the gym uh, in 2009. Uh, and so to me, that just speaks, um, to, you know, how hard we work to kind of make sure that our clients know that we actually care about them and we want them here and we want them to succeed rather than how can we squeeze some money out of you? So what are you doing, uh, to keep people around that long, you know, a decade? (laughs) Well, number one, well, here's another thing that that goes along with this. And, uh, you know, a lot of the the CrossFit gyms now are so focused on the community aspect that they kind of sometimes lose sight of the training. Right. Um, and you know, the community and all that kind of stuff, the social aspect is fantastic. And that's, that's one of the reasons why so many people are now attracted to that kind of training. Um, but you can't lose sight of the fact that you are first and foremost, a gym and people are there to exercise or train. Um, and when people, you know, kind of misprioritize things, that's when I think there are problems. And so even if people love you and they want to hang out with you, if they're not making progress in their training, they're not going to stick around. Uh, and so, you know, the, the way we're able to keep people so long is that we continue to provide quality coaching, you know, you know, rational, safe, um, effective programming that keeps them progressing over the long term. And then we support that with the environment and the community and the culture rather than the other way around where it's like, yeah, let's hang out. We're going to have a barbecue and we're going to get drunk in the gym and do all these things. And, oh, if we have time, maybe we'll write a couple workouts. Um, And to me, you know, taking that approach is very backward and that's how you're going to end up with that revolving door situation. Okay. And I see that for clients. Do you think that same thing is true for coaches? You know, do we need a supportive community of coaches that includes models and mentors. Yeah, I think so. Um, and you know, it's it's very tough uh, these days. I think in the CrossFit world, especially, to number one, to develop uh, good coaches, to hire good coaches, and then to keep good coaches. Um, you know, the the CrossFit model is that um, you know the CrossFit gym opens a couple of the more advanced clients become coaches at that gym. 
and then they peel off and open their own gym down the street. Yeah, and, and so there's like this constant splitting of the cell, and that's how this stuff has grown like a virus. Um, I don't mean that in a negative way. I just mean it's, right. it's just growing exponentially because each gym is just like spitting out uh, you know, coaches who then open their own gyms because right. they're so uh, – again, there's no barrier to entry really. You just need a credit card. Right. Um, and that's one of the fantastic opportunities that CrossFit has created. Of course, it's a double-edged sword in many respects, but – um, the opportunities that the CrossFit market has created are incredible. I mean, that largely supports my business. So I'm, I'm very grateful for the Glassman's, you know, whatever problems we've had in the past, like I, I will never not be grateful for that. Um, and they know that I think, um, but so you, you ha- each gym, the gym owner has to be very cognizant of the culture they create and that they model, um, with respect to the other coaches. And there has to be, um, a sense of of uh, ownership. There has to be a, a sense of investment by those coaches. They have to feel like they're part of the gym and not just uh, you know expendable employees. Because that's how you lose people. Right. You, know, you, you have a coach who's unhappy at a gym because they feel like they're not really a part of it. They're just the guy who has to come in and restock the fridge and then run the class <laughs> and close up. Yeah. Uh, versus someone who's genuinely contributing. Um, you know, maybe writing programming or, you know, suggesting new classes, you know, these different things where they, they actually are invested personally in it. Um, and I think that's how you not only get, but maintain good coaches. And then you have to support it financially too. These guys have to make enough money that it's worth their while. Right. Um, and you know, one of our, our biggest things is that we pay our coaches very well. Right. Um, and from a business point of view, we pay them too well. Uh, we screw ourselves. Yeah. We, I mean, we truly do. We, we really screw ourselves in that respect, but to me it's worth it because I have really great coaches, really good employees, and they love being here. Um, and I'm not constantly worried about them bailing out and opening a weightlifting gym down the street. Um, you know, I can rely on them to do a good job and I can have high expectations of them because they know that I'm paying them well and I value what they're doing. Okay. Okay. Well, that, that's great. And how are your coaches paid, Greg? I don't want numbers. I just want, is it commission-based? Are they doing personal training? Is it a salary? They, uh, they get a flat fee per okay. class. Okay. And that depends on basically how long they've been coaching. So awesome. there, we have a couple different uh, rates among our coaches kind of based on experience and how long they've been working with us. Um, and then for their their private training rates, um, each has his or her own rate that we determine, and then they get a percentage of that. And that percentage increases the more training hours per month that they have and their class hours contribute to that. So in other words, um, that's kind of their incentive because they can make more money with private training, but we need people to coach classes. So that's their incentive to coach classes is that those hours can bump them up to the next higher uh, tier for private training percentage. Oh, okay. I like it. I like it. And then when they do admin work, they've, they've got a flat, a flat know, hourly rate. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense too, of course. Okay. Well, Greg, um, you know, I know your time is super tight and, uh, so I'm going to, I'm going to finish on that, but, uh, I really appreciate you being on the show and I hope we can talk again another time. Yeah. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. 
It's time for Critical Questions. Got a question for Chris? Email chris at twobrainbusiness.com. Here's our most critical question this week. Today's question comes from Sarah, and Sarah asks, what is a mentor? I posted this on my blog a long time ago, and I write about it often because I've been trusted as a mentor now for several years, and that's an always evolving role. I'm always trying to get better to be a model, an example, uh, so that other people have somebody to look at and say, uh, I'm going to do things that way. It is sometimes a gauntlet to run down that path, but it's something that I work on all the time. To answer Sarah's question, though, I don't want to get into philosophy. What I want to do is describe the difference between a model, a mentor, and like a seminar, okay, like a teacher. Because I do all three in different forms of different businesses. The easiest one's a seminar. So this is like a short-term engagement where I'm going to show up and dump as much knowledge as possible. I'm going to do a few tricks to help you retain your knowledge as well as possible. And anybody that's been through a 321Go Project seminar knows that we're playing brain tricks all the time. We're moving around a lot. We're doing everything that we can to improve your knowledge. And we're giving you materials. And after the seminar is done, we're sending you videos to remind you, like, here's all the stuff that you learned. A model is something that you can follow almost verbatim, or you can at least mirror. So for a lot of people, when they're a beginner in a new sport, say boxing, a model is very helpful because you can just watch and do what they do. A newcomer in business will find a model really helpful because they don't have to guess, you know, what's best for me? How do I make this applicable to my situation? It's just, here's what to do, checklist, do it. And there are a lot of people out there selling models. A lot of people benefit from models. They want a checkbox. A mentor, though, is the person who sees between models and can tailor a model or replace a model based on what the mentee or the student or the client is looking for. Not every model is going to work for everybody, and no model is going to work for very long. A model, a lot of the time, is a short-term fix. For a lot of people, it's a necessary short-term fix. They need to gain some momentum. They need some traction, and a model will give them that for a while. The beautiful thing about being an entrepreneur is that you can jump from model to model to model for a long time. Eventually, though, what you're going to have to do is develop the entrepreneurial mindset of trying things and growing yourself and making mistakes and learning from those mistakes. And that is what a mentor's role is. A lot of the times I find myself giving people permission to try things and measure the outcome and then walking through that outcome with them, measuring pros and cons, you know, and applying an objective scale or sometimes an objective viewpoint. A lot of what I do is prioritizing for people. So where somebody will get on the phone with me and actually have a lot of great ideas, the problem might be that they don't know which one to pursue first or that they're currently pursuing all of them or that they're paralyzed because there are so many opportunities. And this happens more often than you think. For other people though, when we get on the phone, they're just stuck. They've, they've dabbled a little bit. They've tried this and this, but they haven't really maybe understood the concept completely 
or they can't understand why it's working for somebody else, or they're just getting plain too much advice and they need a filter. And so for those folks, we're going to talk step by step. And in either case, I need to talk to somebody live to do that. Technology is great now. I don't have to fly to somebody's gym to be a successful mentor, but I know mentors who feel that they have to do that. I would rather be available to help more people and through a life of service, I am most satisfied when I can help people most successfully. So that means maintaining this balance point between a lot of people and a few people, but getting into great depth with them. This is why 321 Go Project developed the 321 Go Academy, so that people who need systems, who need some traction, they need some momentum under their belt, they need to be told, do this, and then this is step B, and here is step C, and step D. There's a proven method there for them to follow. Eventually, though, these people, everybody, is going to need a mentor. A lot of people who have been successful at other things in the past need a mentor to help them transition into a new thing or maybe to transition to the next thing. And so more and more since writing Two Brain Business 2.0, I get calls from people who are looking to transition into another business ownership. And this is great. So they've they've done really well as a gym owner, but now they want to become a real entrepreneur. And it is my, you know, intense pleasure to help them do that. In the last 30, 40 days, I believe I've signed seven non-disclosure agreements with people who have offered me shares of companies, um, who have uh, tried to exchange mentorship maybe for ownership. And in two cases, I actually did accept a percentage of their company to help guide them. And this is the kind of thing I really enjoy now. Sarah, I really hope that answers your question. I know I rambled quite a bit there. The best thing that anybody can do after they decide they need a mentor is to get on the phone with several people. You know, Look at them in the eye over Skype if you can. Ask them about their model. Ask them if you need a model or if you need something else. And ask them where you're starting from. You know, Tell them the pieces of the puzzle that you already have. Let them try to show you the box cover or at least you know, what steps you would take. Hope that helps. Have a great week, everyone.